please to Acts chapter 12. I will be working through or trying to work through the whole chapter, so I'm not going to pre-read. We'll just kind of read it a section at a time and talk about it. But there's something I need to explain first. Uh, if you've been paying attention to evangelical news lately, particularly after this last Southern Baptist Convention and, our last, and the last PCA Convention, there's been a lot of hubbub about well-known preachers plagiarizing one another, copying one another's works and delivering it as their own. A lot of that discussion has been over sermons that Ed Litton supposedly borrowed from J.D. Greer, and J.D. Greer also borrowed from Ed Litton, and I've read that there's also uh, Tim Keller's involved with it. Come to find out with a little bit of research, they all, they all use, hire, pay for the same research group, a group called Docent Research Group. If they want to do any research or an investigation preparing a sermon, they will pay for it, and it gets quite expensive. The big problem with that is this docent research group is not specifically a theological research group. It's just research. No one on their research staff has a theology degree or a Bible school training. And I'm saying all this for kind of a preface to let you know I do my own research. Save you a lot of money. If I ever use a quote, I try my best to mention where it came from. I try and respect the work of others. Uh, this is just to inform you quickly before we get into the message. Uh, this morning's message, I got a little help from, uh, a great deal of help from Vladi Balkum. He brought a great deal of clarity to this chapter. Commentaries provide a lot of information about what happened here, but most lack application. And you can get a lot of information from reading the Bible and even studying the Bible, but if you were to hear a message about this text that was just information, you would leave here today and wonder, that was okay, that was interesting, but what do I do with it? We must have application of the word in order that we might know how to live for the Lord from what we've learned from the word. I'm not going to quote Baldy Bauckham word for word. His message on this chapter helped bring clarity to understanding and how to apply it. So if you stumble across his message on the internet, much of it is his or some of it is his. Allow me to pray, and then we'll begin our lesson. Lord in heaven, thank you for your word and for 
its truth and for its power in our lives. We ask, dear Lord, that you might open up our hearts and our minds, help us to pay attention to what is here before us, that we may honestly understand your providence, your will, your authority in our lives for your glory. Amen. This chapter in the book of Acts is the last transitional chapter The gospel message has been introduced through the power of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts, and it first went to the nation of Israel. It is now beginning to transition, making inroads into the nations, the Gentiles. This is almost the last chapter where Peter is mentioned. After this chapter, he'll be mentioned one more time in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 15 at the First General Assembly of the First Presbyterian Church of Jerusalem. After this chapter, the book focuses on the ministry and the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul. But what I would like to do this morning is look at three pictures or three examples within this chapter. Each example helps us to see the authority of God's will. And I've kind of deliberately called this morning's message a display of God's supreme authority I wonder sometimes if we get hear, tired of hearing the word providence. Very often, Christians confuse God's providence with kind of a version of Christian luck. It's God's authority. It's God's right to do what God needs to do in order that he might give glory, get glory and in order that his word might prevail. So there are three things I would like to look at. The death of James, deliverance of Peter, and doubtful prayer. This chapter begins and ends in death. It opens with the death of a saint, and it ends with the death of a persecutor. In God's sovereign authority, God's providence is over both and everything in between. So let's read the first three verses of Acts chapter 12. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw it, that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. Luke here uses the name Herod but he does not designate which Herod this was. The Herodian dynasty was a ruling class in Israel or over Israel. Herod the Great ruled during the time of Christ's birth. Herod the Great was the one who had sent soldiers into Bethlehem to have all male children two years and younger murdered in order to stop the newborn king. After his death, Herod Antipas came to rule. He was in charge or ruling during the time or beginning of Christ's adult ministry. 
This was the Herod. Herod Antipas was the Herod who married his brother Philip's wife. This was the Herod whom John the Baptist preached against for his sin of incest. This was the Herod who had John the Baptist beheaded. That brings us to Herod Agrippa. The Herod that we find in Acts chapter 12. Herod Agrippa was the grandson of Herod the Great and the nephew of Herod Antipas. Herod Agrippa was educated in Rome and was recognized in political circles of Rome as a contender to govern Jerusalem. He was finally appointed king in Jerusalem by Caligula. And if you remember your Roman history, Caligula was not an honorable or righteous ruler. And after Caligula's death, Herod Agrippa was permitted to continue his rule by Claudius. But all in all, Herod Agrippa only ruled about four years. Agrippa was a consummate politician, full of pride and full of fear. He wanted to keep the political forces happy because they were the ones who controlled whether he remained in his office or not. We are not told why, we're not given specific circumstances, but Herod Agrippa had James decapitated. When it talks about death by sword, that's what it means. Certainly, probably because of his gospel ministry. James was one of the apostles. James was one of the inner circle. When Christ ruled this, excuse me, when Christ walked this earth, James, John, and Peter were the inner circle. These were the ones who God, whom the Lord Jesus Christ called to himself anytime he wanted to discuss particular decisions. These were the ones who were with him on the Mount of Transfiguration. These were the ones who were allowed to see face to face the glorified Lord Jesus Christ. James and John were brothers. These are the ones the Lord called sons of thunder. And in Matthew chapter 20, there is that account where the Lord was having dinner, having a social gathering with his disciples. And the mother of James and John came to the Lord and asked for a favor. And the Lord said to her, what do you want? What do you want? And she said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. And Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. And then turning to James and John, are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink the cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. The Lord was talking about the cup of death, and that's the cup that James partook, partook when he died a martyr's death. So we see here the death of a saint at the hands of a tyrant. 
And you might think that's quite, it is disturbing. It's discouraging. It's shocking. The people had seen so very often, so very frequently, the power of the Lord or the Holy Spirit during that time. And you would think that would be encouraging. Christ's church is on the move. People are being healed. People are being saved. Wonderful things were happening. But the darkness and the rebellion in this world was pushing back. You need to know and remember that the Lord's protection and favor is your only hope. However, if you ever suffer for the Lord, as James did, as John the Baptist did, as Stephen the deacon did, if you ever suffer for the Lord and have to give your life for him, it will not be because God blinked. It will be because that is the way God chose that you should glorify him with your life. One of the things that Dr. Balkum really helps with. James was dead. And one second after he lost his head, he was in the presence of the Lord himself. And not for one minute would James trade what he had then just to spend another day with his disciples on earth. And you and I have that same kind of promise that we who suffer for the Lord suffer only temporarily and we have eternal glory to experience in exchange for all of the pain and all the loss we might feel here. We all have heard stories about missionaries who have died bringing the gospel to the lost. In 1832, American missionaries went to the island of Batak, part of the island of part of the islands that belonged to Indonesia. In 1834, they sent a report of their progress back home. They were learning the language. They were getting acquainted with the people. And these were, they knew they were, these were cannibals. After the ship left with their information about this, about their progress, these cannibals turned on the people and promptly killed them and had them for supper. That was 1834. That same year, Ludwig Nomensen was born. And as he grew into adulthood, the Lord called him to be a missionary. He called him to be a missionary to the Badak people. And he went back to the islands. He had studied these men's journals and their reports and their progress and carried the gospel back to them. And by 1876, 
There were 2,000 Batak believers because of his ministry. By 1878, he had finished translating the New Testament into Batak with the help of a fellow missionary, Peter Johansson. By Nomensen's death in 1918, there were 180,000 Batak believers. 34 Patak pastors and 788 teachers and preachers. By the beginning of World War II, most of the missionaries left the island. But Patak leaders were already well established. The indigenous people there were ready to lead their own church. Today, there are over a half million Christians on that island. The gates of hell shall not prevail against the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a promise that he keeps. Sometimes that promise is kept by the blood of martyrs. Sometimes that promise is kept because of great sacrifice that his people offer. But it is a promise the Lord Jesus keeps. This is the kind of Godward life, or this is the kind of God-honoring life we should all be striving to do. The death of James did not stop the church. But the death of James brought glory to the Lord Jesus. So Herod had taken James and put him to death. He had Peter arrested. Verse 4, when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. He wanted to present a show. Here's Peter. Here's the leader of this new Christian sect. We're going, while all the people are in Jerusalem, while we can get as many people seeing this enough, we're going to have Peter executed. Four squads of soldiers, in order they could keep shift work around the clock. Every six hours, four soldiers would come in and change places with four other soldiers. There were two that were tied to him by chains on either side, and there were two that guarded the door of his cell. Very important prisoner. Verse 5, so, so Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made by God, made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with, with two chains, and a series and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, 
wrap your cloak around you and follow me, and went out and followed him. He did not know what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them on its own accord, and they went out and went along the street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where they were gathered together and were praying. I've heard ministers deliver messages about this text, and they were saying, and they would say excitedly, they, he was delivered because of prayer. Well, we're going to see that it probably was not because of prayer. Peter didn't ask to be delivered. Peter didn't pray to be delivered. There's no evidence in the scripture about any prayers from him. We assume the rest of the disciples did pray and were praying. But apparently they had been praying all night long. I've heard ministers say that Peter was delivered because of his faith. Faith in what? We know he had faith in the Lord. I'm not denying any faith, but his faith was not in deliverance. He didn't expect to be delivered. He didn't know he was really being delivered until he had gotten out into the street. Peter was sound asleep. He did have faith. Like I said, I'm not denying his faith. I'm not denying his trust in the Lord. Let someone clap you in irons and tell you that you are going to die tomorrow. How well would you sleep? Peter was sound asleep. A bright light shone in that cell, and it didn't bother Peter. He had to be slapped upside the head to wake up. He had to be told to get dressed. Put on your shoes. We're leaving. And he thought he was dreaming or seeing a vision. I remember one time my dear wife was sound asleep and I came in and turned on the light and she woke up right away. What are you doing? Peter was so sound asleep, the angel's light didn't even bother him. Peter was delivered because of God's providence. God was not done with him. Most of us are immortal until God is done with us. I think that is a bit of confidence we can take on our own that God has purpose and reason for each and every one of us. 
And we are, as Christians, to seek ways to fulfill that purpose. First purpose is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Our second purpose is to share Christ in his glory. Share the gospel. We see the death of James. We see the deliverance of Peter. We also see doubtful prayer. Verse 12 when Peter realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose, name, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, the servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice and her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and kept saying, it is, and they kept saying, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison, and he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Just a note, a sidebar, very quickly. There are three James mentioned in the New Testament. James, the brother of John, who is already dead. James, the son of Altheus, another one of the disciples. And there was another who was not of the twelve, James, the brother of Christ, James, the brother of Jesus. James, the brother of Jesus, was also the author of the book of James. We aren't quite sure which James this is referring to, but MacArthur tends to lean toward James, brother of Jesus. Another leans toward son of Alphaeus. But just to alleviate any confusion, it was not the James who had just died. Peter was released from prison he arrived at Mary's house. He knocked on the gate. Rhoda was excited, came in and told them. They didn't believe it. They told her, you're crazy. She insisted, no, it's his ghost. And then they heard the racket. He's still knocking out there. They went and saw him themselves. We need to understand that God is Sovereign. Doubtful faith did not stop God's will for Peter. They had been praying for him. They had lost James. They were afraid they were going to lose Peter. I don't know what their prayers consisted of specifically. But they didn't expect to believe. Most, most modern day preachers and teachers will tell you, you've got to pray believing that it will be answered This flies in the face of that teaching. Perhaps we need to have a lesson or two on prayer because prayer sometimes can get confusing. We can pray for certain things believing. I'm convinced that we should always pray believing that God's will and God's purpose will be glorified no matter what happens. 
Because some will pray for God's healing and he will not heal. Some will pray for God's provision and he will not provide. But in the life of those who continue to suffer in sickness or illness and in the life of those who continue to suffer in need, God must be glorified with that life. That's the lesson we need to be getting from this. Why should anyone believe God if there were nothing greater beyond this life? We live to serve him and an eternal purpose. And when we live in such a way that everything in this life can be counted as nothing, then he is glorified. The Apostle Paul said, I count all things as loss. And in the Greek, that word loss is a word skubalo. It literally means flung dung. All of his education, all of his learning, all of his suffering, he counted as loss, that Christ might be glorified. And when we pray, that should be the way we pray. Doubtful faith in their prayer did not stop God's will for Peter. God was not done with Peter yet. Peter still got out of prison. Despite the fact that they doubted their own prayers. In verse 18 Herod had still not found out about Peter's release. Now when the day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. After Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries in order that they should be put to death. Then he went down, to, down from Judea to Caesarea to spend some time there. This world has nothing but death for us. We sing the hymn, this is my father's world. Yes, it is. But when we sing that, we are thinking of the new heaven and the new earth, which we shall one day inherit. Right now. We are occupying enemy territory. This world and its leadership, its tendencies, its culture has nothing but death and darkness for us as Christians. And we need to see that and we need to understand that. What Herod did here was usual. It was expected. These were not Roman soldiers, but it was a Roman practice. When a soldier failed his duties, he was executed. These were likely temple guards. And it's practiced by Roman soldiers because they failed. 
chained to a prisoner, and he's not there in the morning. Gates still closed and very likely locked, and he's nowhere in the prison. They paid with their lives because of this maniacal leader, Herod. And when he got done with that, he said, I'm going to the beach. He went down to Caesarea. In verse 20, Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked Herod for peace, because their country depended on King Herod's country for food. On the appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took a seat on the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a god and not a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. This was a political episode. It's kind of an aftermath or a, a, an afterword of, what, of the events of the chapter. But it gives us an account of how God's providential hand was also not only over the death of a saint. God's providential hand orchestrated and covered the death of a sinner. Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, a political thing. They came to him through one of his advisors, a chamberlain by the name of Blastus. Blastus appealed to Herod, you need to offer these people some, some help. They are dependent upon the food our country can provide. If we have a rebellion here, it's not going to look good to Rome. It's not going to be good for Jerusalem. So Herod went down to speak to them. And other texts describe his royal robes as shining like silver. It was, there was silver on the garment. And some describers, Josephus, I believe, describes the sun catching that. And it, he looked like a star, bright shining in the amphitheater. And all of the people praised him. Oh, the voice of, uh, they were hungry. They wanted to win his favor, so they were flattering him. The voice of a god and not of a man. But he was eating it up. And at the same time, the worms were eating him. He was infected with parasites. Not very pleasant. Doctors and physicians who have studied this say it was probably in his liver and probably one of the cysts where these eggs had been planted and were growing burst open. He got sick that day. Just, it seems like he died right then, but he got sick and probably collapsed that day. He lingered, he suffered for five more days, according to Josephus, and died. Verse 24, but the word of God increased and multiplied. 
the word of God increased and multiplied. We've seen the death of James. We've seen the deliverance of Peter. And we've seen doubtful prayer. And we've also seen the death of a sinner. The death of a persecutor. The death of an evil ruler. All under God's sovereign authority. All under his providence. We as Christians need to realize how far and how deep God's authority and providence goes. It covers us. It protects us. It guides us. It directs us. The chapter begins and ends in a death. We need to take some counsel from Dr. Balkum because of this. He first says that narrative is not normative. We see a narration of a story, and sometimes people will read this and try and find some blueprint to show us how to get things done. But we cannot find that kind of a lesson here. We've got to draw from God's providence. How was God overseeing all of this? How was he controlling it? What was he doing through all of this? Because death and deliverance are both in God's hands. Sometimes the death of God's saints is required. Sometimes the deliverance of God's saints is required. When the people of God, when the disciples of Jesus got the news about James's death, they probably wondered where God was. That's why they went to pray. They didn't expect Peter to be spared at all. But he was. When you strive to live a God-honoring life, remember that God always acts on his own behalf and for his own glory. Someone here might be asked, required sometime in your life to suffer some loss, to suffer some pain, to suffer some disease, to suffer some ridicule, or even persecution, in order that he might give glory, get glory. There is a book. about a missionary named John Patton. It was written or, it's an autobiography, but it's edited by his brother. To the best of our knowledge, the New Hebrides had no Christian influence before John Williams and James Harris from London Missionary Society landed in 1839. Both of these missionaries were killed and eaten by cannibals on the island of Eramanga on November 20th of that year, only minutes after going ashore. Let's go share the gospel for Jesus. 
48 years later, John Patton wrote, Thus were the New Hebrides baptized with the blood of the martyrs, and Christ thereby told the whole Christian world that he claimed these islands as his own. When Patton was preparing for the ministry, he went to a Mr. Dickinson. If I remember correctly, it was one of his seminary, no, he was with the London Missionary Society, and Patton told him what he intended to do, what he wanted to go. And Mr. Dickinson exploded, you want to go back to the cannibals? You will be eaten by cannibals. He was remembering Williams and Harris 19 years earlier. And Mr. Patton responded, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus. It will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or eaten by worms. And in the great day of my resurrection body will rise and as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. Those were his word, own words written in his autobiography. Today, 93% years after the death of John Patton, 85% of the population of that island, which is now known as Vanuatu, you ever hear of it before? Identifies itself as Christian. 21% perhaps describes themselves as evangelical. The sacrifices and the legacy of missionaries to the New Hebrides are really something to consider. The sacrifices of Christians who have given all for the Lord Jesus Christ because they understand the providence of God speaks volumes to the world and praises him for his glory. Shall we pray? Lord, once again we thank you for your wonderful presence in our lives. We thank you for the teaching of your word, and we pray that as we look together at what is given here this day in this book, we may be able to praise you as one for the Lord Jesus. It is in his name we ask it. Amen.